0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Today we're talking about something that shouldn't be so depressing, something that is typically
0: awesome. It's women cycling, pro women cycling. Yeah, we got a letter not too long ago from a listener, an avid cyclist named Golly. G-A-L-I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, And it was around when the Tour de France kicked off. This year was the 100th Tour de France. And Gali wrote in saying, hey, ladies, you should look into women's pro cycling because there's a lot of inequity going on versus men's pro cycling.
1: Yeah, I mean, so much inequity and not just recently. This is not just like... A couple of races have been canceled since the dawn of professional cycling. There has been quite a discrepancy, not only in the opportunities for women, but also as we are about to look into what women can make. Financially,
0: And to me, Caroline, part of why this research was so eye-opening is that up until this point, almost any time we've mentioned women and bicycles in the podcast, it's been very celebratory mm-hmm. because the, the bicycle opened up this new form of transportation and sparked a, a revolution in a way for women to shed their Victorian bustles and put on bloomers and pedal away from the home, etc. But... Uh, <laughs> When it comes to competitive bikes and cycling, uh, that's kind of where the, the celebration stops. Because let's start out May 31st, 1868, Paris, France. Yeah, we have the first bike
1: race in history. Oh, for men only, of course. But yeah, still the first bike race in history. And this is coming from the It's About the Bike blog.
0: And then uh we found the 1896 book, which I posted on Tumblr, if you want to look at it. The, the cover is uh, adorable and hilarious and very kitschy. Uh, it's called Bicycling for Ladies by Maria Ward, and it contains advice on maintenance, repair, clothing, etc. And Ward writes, I have found that in bicycling, as in other sports, essayed by them, women and girls bring upon themselves censure from many sources. I've also found that the censure, though it almost... Invariably is deserved. Is called forth not so much by what they do as the way they do it. So mm. basically, uh, she, she was saying that women were attracting some negative attention by bicycling, and, and the way that they cycle, and how how little has changed. Yeah, how dare they pedal so provocatively down
1: the street in their big poofy pants? I mean, that's just titillating. Um, well, so move forward way forward to 1958, again in France, we have the first Union Cycliste International, that's not at all how that's pronounced, by the way, uh, women's bike race. The first UCI men's race, however, was 58 years prior to that in 1900.
0: Yeah, so it took uh, quite a while for women to even get their first UCI race. And the Union Cycliste International... So, we're, we're very American. Yeah, I, you know what, I minored in Spanish in college. <laughs> hey, I, I took three semesters of French, I just, uh, use it or lose it. Um but the, that union, UCI, is really important in this conversation because it is the organization, global organization for Amateur and pro cyclists. They're the ones who are behind the Tour de France and these major races. So the fact that, for instance, it took them 58 years to catch up is, is just a foreshadowing of what is to come. Um, and in that 1958 race, it was Elsie Jacobs of Luxembourg who won and she retired in 1974 with a career total of 19 victories in the UCI Road World Championship. So anyone who wants to argue that there isn't a lot of of you know, top-tier female cyclist talent out there that, that these women just don't exist. Well, there's Elsie Jacobs. She's one of many. Yeah, these people have existed since the beginning. It's just that
1: they didn't have the opportunity to even like have that stage on which to demonstrate their incredible ability. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't until the 1984 Summer Olympics that we have the first Olympic women's cycling event And during this event, American Connie Carpenter Finney won the gold in a field of 45 competitors. Compare that to the first men's Olympic cycling race in 1896. They only had seven competitors back then.
0: Oh, yeah, but that was in 1896. Yeah. Okay. Finally in 1984. We have, okay. Just a couple of years later. Well, this is a similar kind of issue that came up in our episode a while ago on women and marathon running. Because when it comes to endurance sports like running, cycling, they've had this legacy of limiting or outright banning women for fears that it might physically harm us, particularly our reproductive function. we made lots of jokes in the marathon episode about people. People actually going on public record saying that running for long distances is harmful to women's uteruses, which that's not fact for anyone (laughs) listening. Um, But cycling lags even behind marathon running and the triathlon in which men and women compete on the same courses these days. Yeah. And so that's part of the argument now that, that
1: we're dealing with as far as women's cycling goes and, and particularly with the Tour de France, which we'll get into as far as, you know, women should be able to participate in the same types of
0: races, if not at the same time. And three of the main obstacles that are often cited in what holds women's pro cycling back from really coming to the forefront and and being on an equal platform with men's pro cycling is that there are often no entry-level races for popular race series, a lack of media attention, which is something that plagues a lot of women's pro sports in general, and then smaller prizes. Once you actually put in all that effort and get to the top of your game and you're racing in the biggest women's pro cycling races out there, your reward for it monetarily is so small compared to the men's. And this is something that uh, listener Gally pointed out in her letter that she wrote us.
1: Yeah, so let's do a little comparison. The Tour de France purse is 450,000 euro, which equates to about 594,000 dollars. And one stat we found is that the 2013 winner, Chris Froome,
0: earned more than $7,000 an hour. That's almost as much as we make podcasting. <laughs> You know,
1: <laughs> it's so close. Yeah, almost. But when you look at the Giro Rosa, which is the biggest race on women's calendars today, the purse for that, it's just about 600 bucks.
0: Yeah. The, the 2013 winner, American Mara Abbott, won $595.26. Which is,
1: it boggles my mind because think, all right, if, if you're a pro athlete, uh, you know, if you're a pro cyclist, imagine how much time goes into training and how much money goes into buying all of your stuff, all of your supplies and your bikes and everything. And to, to make it to the top of your game where you're competing in these huge races to only make 600 bucks? Yeah, $600 won't
0: even buy you a high-end race-worthy bike. Right. One estimate that Bloomberg cited was that elite women's racers earn as little as $15,800 a year, which is more than 20 times less than men.
1: Yeah, I that's absolutely crazy to me, but it does make some kind of twisted sense when you do think about those reasons uh that we talked about earlier, the, the lack of media attention. I mean, that is cited by so many people as to why we should not have more women's races. A lot of people who are at the head of these like cycling unions and, and organizations that put these races on are like, see, they don't get any you know, TV attention or ad advertising. So let's not create any more races for these people.
0: Yeah. And so what's going on right now is that there's been a lot of movement and organizing among not only Professional women cyclists, but also amateur women cyclists saying, hey, you know what? Uh, this is really not working out so well for us. There's even a documentary that's been in the works called Half the Road looking into this issue and a lot of higher profile women cyclists who are coming out publicly calling for change, including British Olympic medalist Lizzie Armistead, who said, quote, in a lot of women's teams, you're lucky if they buy you a sandwich at the race. Sponsors keep pulling out of races so they get canceled. The calendar has been more than decimated. So
1: one cyclist who says it better than we could say it because she has that firsthand perspective of being a female cyclist today She says, you know, people often ask why women's cycling isn't bigger. I say it's just because we don't get enough opportunity to show what we could do. And, yeah, I think that goes absolutely back to all of that advertising, the sponsorship problems, and the media attention.
0: Yeah, and, and there have even been some limited experiments with uh, brand sponsoring both men's and women's teams at the same time, but those initiatives have sort of fallen apart pretty quickly. And following the 2013 Parks Casino Philly Cycling Classic, a group of pro-women got together to form the Women's Cycling Association. They finally said, you know what? Enough's enough. We really need to take, uh, you know, this into our own hands and start organizing. And they compared it a lot to when Billie Jean King, the pro tennis player, organized the first women's tennis union to say, "Hey, we're playing tennis too at this top level. Let's start organizing," and effectively really helped raise. Women's tennis to a level much more equal with men's tennis, Um, but but going back to cycling, the now Novartis writer Robin Farina, who was a founder of the Women's Cycling Association and a 2011 U.S. National Road Race Champion, said, "Why are we not treated with the same respect as the men's peloton, which is French for group of?" cyclists, which I learned. And mm-hmm. she said, why are we paid only a quarter of the purse prize? Who's going to take the blame on these items? The UCI, USA Cycling, the races? No one's really going to take charge of this unless we do it ourselves. To which I say, don't mess with women's pro cyclers. No, their quads are
1: probably incredible. Yeah, you could probably b- bounce quarters off of them. I know. I I would love to have quads like that, which is why, a necessary side note, I took my bike out for a ride several, several weeks ago, and I was riding up and down the Beltline, which is a nice trail in Atlanta. And I, of course, me being me, like
0: pinched some kind of tailbone nerve and like it hurt to sit for a month or three, which is now why, you know, you might see me and Caroline out. I'm riding the bike and Caroline's in one of those (laughs) little carts hooked up on the side. (laughs) <laughs> That's, wearing my little leather pilot helmet and goggles, with a little yes. scarf. <laughs> yes. Um The Tour de France, though, which just recently finished up its 100th run, as we mentioned, is such a perfect snapshot of the situation that these women cyclists are up against because it gets so much press. The purse is so huge. It gets such massive media attention, despite the fact that it has been plagued with controversy. Thank you. Lance Armstrong and company. Um, But where are the women? Where are the women? Well, they used to be there. Um, We had the Tour de
1: Feminine, although it would go by uh, different official names, which started in 1984 and then was canceled in 2009. And it faced a lot of issues, namely that it was sued by the Tour de France over its name. But other issues that it faced, uh, according to Cycling News, were unpaid prize money. So women not even getting that $600 prize. Um, excessively long transfers and stages. Scheduling problems. Again, poor sponsorship. And then there were three entire years when it was disbanded. Ni- uh, those were 1990, 91, and 2004.
0: And the Tour de Feminine, in its overall run, you know, from 84 to 2009, uh, would go by different names and different courses. But the parallel race, something that was really comparable in length to the Tour de France, only ran from 1984 to 1989. And there are even rules sanctioned by the UCI saying that women's stages can't be as long as men's stages.
1: Well, your uterus. I mean, what if it just, like, snaps and falls out? What if your boobs explode? Well... <laughs> yes. And that just makes me think of that scene from Orange is the New Black.
0: But, moving on. Yeah, the first women's tour in 1984 was run in 18 stages over 1,080 kilometers, or a quarter of the length of the men's race. And the winner was U.S. Marian Martin, who received... A $1,000. A
1: $1,000. And Jean-Étienne Amari, who's the chairman of the Amari Sport Organization, which is one of the organizers of the Tour de France, said that it just failed to garner a strong following or interest from television. Way to continue to blame TV interest. It's like the chicken and the egg, Mr. Amari. You've got to get an egg first or something. I'm, I'm losing the metaphor. But... Um a lot of the media coverage that was there focused on whether women even had a place in competitive cycling.
0: Yeah, there there was a lot of discomfort with this idea of women trying to jump in there and ride the same course that these men would be. And the Tour de France actually sued the Tour de Feminine before, I think it was something like a trademark infringement or, or using that Tour de name. And so from 1999, it was known as the Grand Boucle Feminine International, but just because of all of these problems with it, being sued, for instance, by the Tour de France, sponsors just pulled out left and right, and it was just never really cemented. And so American cyclist and filmmaker Catherine Bertine has started a petition to allow female cyclists to ride in the Tour with the help from British cyclist and silver medalist Emma Pooley, who is very outspoken on this issue. She recently was on BBC Women's Hour talking about why there needs to be a women's Tour de France.
1: And she also enlisted the help of triathlete Chrissy Wellington and world champion rider Marion Voss. And this petition actually did get the attention of the ASO, the Amurri Sport Organization, just for the sheer number of uh, signatures it got so quickly. As of August 1st of this year, the petition to bring a women's Tour de France by 2014, thats I mean, that's soon, uh, had about 83,000 signatures.
0: Yeah, and there was even uh, a politician in the British government, I, I forget who exactly it was, who publicly came out and called on the tour organizers to get a women's race together, and they were... The tour organizers were not too happy about that. Um, And officially, the word has been, you know, this is a great idea, but it's probably not going to happen too soon. Brian Cookson, for instance, who is the head of British Cycling, who has been supportive, publicly supportive of women's cycling and, and getting some something similar to a women's tour together, has said, nevertheless, I'm not sure if a woman's event of exactly that nature will be feasible in the next 10 years, 20, I don't know. Brian, that's a long time. Yeah, and
1: then Tour de France director Christian Prudhomme basically said that he doesn't want or doesn't think it's possible for the tour to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger down the road. He actually said that that's impossible, but I mean... Are people necessarily saying they want women to be in in the Tour de France or are they saying they want a parallel race? Because if they want a parallel race or something similar to the Tour de France, then his argument of it can't continue to get bigger is is pretty irrelevant. Right. Because
0: what Emma Pooley and other people are saying is we have our race along the same course. We start at a different time to where everything's already set up there mm-hmm. and the media will already be there you're just going to have two races for these fans who are literally standing in one place on the side of the road, and instead of seeing one Peloton go by, you see two. So isn't that better at the end of the day? But still, there's some resistance. Although, certainly... Some think that women could definitely help save the doping tarnished reputation that the Tour de France has attracted in recent years. This was in an article over at Bloomberg. Because get this, Caroline, only one Tour de France winner from 1995 to 2010 has not been linked to doping. Just one. Just mm. one. That, uh, yeah, that is disappointing.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, cycling and baseball, man. So disappointing. Um, but the, the idea of opening the race to women does, according to a lot of people who follow the sport, have a lot of potential to increase interest in the cycling industry overall. Phil Liggett, who's covered the Tour de France since 1974, says that Look, nowadays, women's racing has big stars. It's attracting more interest, and there's a bigger market because general interest overall in cycling has grown.
0: And a lot of people attribute the London Olympics for having this really positive effect on bringing women's cycling more into the limelight, uh, because the London Olympics were hailed as the women's game, and there were a ton of people who turned out for the women's road race. I remember even catching some of it on TV, and I don't follow. Cycling. I just happened to be watching it and it was very exciting. And so that's why you see people, uh, especially British cyclists like Emma Pooley, who are really agitating for more high profile races for women. And there is a women's tour of Britain planned for 2014. Yeah, and they want
1: it to be a five-day standalone event, meaning it's not piggybacking on a men's race. It's not parallel to any men's race. It is its own thing planned for May 2014. And they will attempt to become the first women's cycling event to offer complete parity in terms of prize money and backup support.
0: But speaking of support, when we look at the Union Cycliste International, that, that overarching organization that really has So much of the power in this situation to support women, attract more sponsors, set up more races, et cetera. They really have not helped matters much.
1: Yeah. 2008 Olympic gold medalist Nicole Cook, who has won just about everything there is to win, including the Women's Tour de France twice, the Italian equivalent, the World Championship and the Olympic gold she had a lot of choice words for UCI when she retired. She basically said that her industry, women's cycling, had crumbled under UCI's watch and that the doping scandals had hurt women's racing a whole lot more than it had hurt men's racing.
0: Yeah, she said, quote, the UCI has spent more time setting up the libel suits against Paul Kimmage and Floyd Landis when he said Lance Armstrong was using drugs. It spent all its time on that, rather than developing women's cycling. And so then when sponsors dropped out because of doping, she says, it was the women who suffered the most. It hit us 10 times as hard because a little bit of money has so much impact on women's cycling, uh, which reminds me of uh, the New York Times article that we looked at covering this women's parallel race where the the women were literally in it to maybe win a jersey and had all kind of shuttled, <laughs> carpooled together to this race and everything. And uh, it was a pretty hard scrabble affair. And then at the end, it talks about Lance Armstrong who. It, like, threw a bike away or something because it lost a spoke. I don't know. Because they, they, there's so much so much cash in that corner. I mean, right. and I know Lance Armstrong, at least at that time, was an ex- exception because he was at the top of the game. But still. Mm. Just being like, oh, I lost. Somebody stole a bike. I was just good um, Butler, bring me 12 <laughs> more bikes. What was Sheryl Crow thinking?
1: Yeah, but um, Cook basically said that these dopers they they might think they're just out for themselves, but they're actually stealing others' livelihoods. By having people lose interest in cycling or lose faith in cyclists in general, when those sponsors drop out, it's it's not just the people who took the drugs or did the
0: doping who are affected. Right. Um, the UCI, we will say, has made a bit of a gesture. It has appointed a woman to each of its 18 committees, Hey, it's probably kind of a token position there. And it has initiated a project to develop women's cycling. So while there are clearly some smaller and even more symbolic steps that are being taken, there's still a lot more that the UCI can do. So I think it's time, Caroline, to hear from our listeners out there. Do you think that anyone is listening to this right now on a bicycle? Ooh, I hope so. I hope we're not distracting you too much. Yeah. I hope we're giving you a lot of things to think about while cycling. That's right. But still keep an eye out for traffic. Right. And trees and cats and stuff. And roots. (laughs) <laughs> All of the roots. Uh, but yeah, we want to hear from you about this issue because this is definitely one of those onion kinds of topics where you start peeling things away. And oh, wow, it, there is a lot inside of that. So email us momstuff at discovery.com or you can hit us up on Facebook or tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And now back to our letters. <laughs> Well, I've got one here from our Facebook page that Melissa wrote to about our engagement ring podcast. Because we had asked for uh, feedback specifically from gay couples on what are your engagement ring new traditions that you are making. And she says, while I am not personally in a same-sex relationship, I did want to let you ladies know what my uncle and his partner did because I think it is just too adorable for words. My uncles purchased matching Tiffany's gold bands and inside one ring is engraved the date of their first date and inside the other ring is engraved the date of the proposal and they randomly grab one each morning luckily she says they have the same size finger it's impossibly sweet and I actually let out a loud aww when I found out about it the first time despite not having a diamond I think they got the romance nailed down and I agree that's really very sweet that is
1: very sweet. I, and, hey, I'm always impressed when somebody remembers the date of their first date. Yeah. I don't know that I could remember that. Um, okay. Well, so this one is from Mora. She wrote in about our Women in Archaeology episode that we did a while back. And I'm always excited to hear from people about this because, like I've said multiple times on the podcast, I am really into Indiana Jones and wanted to be an archaeologist. So, anyway, uh, Mora says, I am actually an archaeology grad student and a woman. Recently in archaeology, there has been a shift to what is called post-processual archaeology. This type is more concerned with everyday people doing everyday activities. While ceremonial and religious sites are important, this newer focus in archaeology allows more for archaeologists to use a theoretical basis for their excavation. For example, I know quite a few feminist, Marxist, or critical race theory archaeologists. The questions for study become more concerned with the conditions of regular people than just the wealthy and noble. By continuing this work, women will not only contribute to the field... But society can learn more about the lives of women in pastimes, which will hopefully inform feminists today. So thank you, Maura.
0: And thanks to everybody who's written in Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send emails. You can also find us on Facebook and message us there or tweet us at momstuffpodcast. Podcast. And if you want to keep up with us during the week, you should head on over to stuff I'm never told you And of course, you can watch us four times a week. We put out brand new videos on YouTube. So head on over to to youtube.com slash stuff mom never told you and don't forget to subscribe for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com